We're going to talk this morning about um, another prophecy made, and I, I hope this encourages you today. It's about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. You might say, well, what's that got to do with anything? Why is that a big deal? Because Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. We talked about that last week. And being God, he could have picked anywhere to be born. Amen. You kind of get your choice. And he picked Bethlehem. And generations before that had a had the prophet Micah prophesy that he would be born there on purpose to fulfill scripture. And so we want to look into what that means for us today and what uh, what that fulfilled prophecy in Christ, what it means. So we're going to read again from Matthew chapter two, and then we're going to go to Micah and read a little bit there. So if you're not familiar with how we do it here, we stand at the reading of the word in honor of that. And then we'll let you sit down for two hours. Matthew chapter two, we'll start in verse one. Say amen if you're ready. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When, when Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him now, I want to just stop here. This is so crazy to me that Herod, the, the king of the Jews at that time, could surround himself with all these religious leaders and say, where's the, where's the king supposed to be born? Where's he supposed to be born? And they say, Bethlehem. They knew. They knew it was happening. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah and it says, and you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they departed to their own country by another way. Now we're going to read from Micah chapter one, starting in verse chapter five, starting in verse one. And this is exactly where Micah says these words that, that the chief priests and the scribes quote to Herod. It goes like this. Now muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. 
Therefore he shall give them up until the time. When she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you promised a savior and he came. That you kept your word. We thank you, Lord, that you gave us hope. That today, because of Jesus, we have hope. And we pray, Lord, that we'd be encouraged by your word today. Transform us because we looked into it. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. All right, if you don't mind, we're going to go back a little bit and we're going to deal, we're going to talk about the prophet Micah and, and what he was talking about in Micah chapter five. And it it has a, a little bit of a tie-in to what we talked about last week with King Ahaz. Now, if you remember last week, King Ahaz had um, made an alliance uh, with Assyria to, to get out of um, being under siege. He thought he, thought he was, they were going to be defeated, and so he needed to make a quick alliance, and he went against the prophet, and... The prophet said, no, you, God is telling you, you don't need to do anything. You just need to stand strong. Just stay still. Don't do anything. And, and he ends up making an alliance with Assyria and becomes a vassal king, basically, a, a, a pointless. And makes a really bad deal where they actually go in and modify the altar in the temple, the Holy of Holies in the temple. They modify it and bring in pagan worship from Assyria in, in there. And so, Really, we're dealing with a country who has lost, totally lost their identity. They've allowed pagan worship. They're being ruled by someone else. Well, no kingdom stands forever. Amen? Except the king of kings. So what happens is the Assyrians don't last forever. They end up getting defeated by the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. And... What is happening is that in between this, in between the Assyrians taking over and the Babylonians taking over, we have Micah the prophet. And he's prophesying about a time that will come after, after he's gone. So the prophet Micah worked between the years of 737 and 696. Look at your neighbor and say, that's a pretty good career. That's a, that's a pretty long time. The prophecy in Micah chapter 5 points to 150 years later after Micah. Now Jerusalem is going to fall. There's, there's a king called Zedekiah who is, who is not a godly king. And you see this pattern over and over and over again. And he's doing almost the same thing that Ahaz did. He, in order to try to escape, in order to try to escape defeat, he's trying to make a alliance with, with Egypt. And so let me explain it this way. They were, they were under the control of, of Assyria. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians defeat Assyria. So now King Zedekiah is a vassal king to Nebuchadnezzar. And as long as he does whatever they say, they're going to leave him alone. But he decides 
against the advice of a prophet named Jeremiah. Anybody familiar with that prophet, Jeremiah? He goes against Jeremiah. Jeremiah's like, again, don't do anything. Just do what they tell you to do and you're going to be fine. And he's like, no. Can we, can we, uh, just make a, can, can we just make a little pact this morning? That if God tells you not to do anything, don't do anything. It seems like the easiest thing literally to do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And it's sometimes we complicate our own complications. Is that true? Now, this may look different now than it did back then. I know you're not just full on disobeying a king. Most of you aren't. Um, but sometimes in our families, don't we just meddle in it a little too much sometimes? No young, no young adult kids have to raise their hands and say, amen. Just give me a breathing room every now and then, mom and dad. Um, but sometimes I've found in our lives that God just says, hey, just trust me in this circumstance. You can't do anything about it. But I told you last week, I like doing things about everything. Amen? Anybody else like me? I just like doing things about everything. I think there's a fixable solution to every problem in the room. And if we can, we, we get together, we can find the solution. Amen? That seems logical to me. And so if you have a problem, there's a logical solution to the problem. And if we sit in the room long enough, we can come up with it, impl- implement it, and then everybody will be happy. Because they're doing what I want. Just looking out around the room for who we're having lunch with. Um, so over and over again, you find this pattern that God's going, hey, now we're, now we're all the way to Zedekiah. And, and Jeremiah's telling him the same thing. Don't do anything. Just surrender to him. God's going to take care of you. Seven years of captivity. Don't do anything. Because Nebuchadnezzar's coming in hot. And he's going to take over, and, and this is what's going to happen. And he's saying, don't do anything. Now, the problem is there's always somebody else in your ear telling you to do something. And we tend to listen to the people that we have the most in common with. And so Zedekiah listens to a false prophet. Jeremiah, the prophet, is telling him, don't do anything. And there's a false prophet telling him, no, 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 don't surrender, you fight. What ends up happening is Zedekiah ends up being taken captive the Babylonians lay siege of Jerusalem. They overtake the city. He ends up de- being taken captive. They kill, both, they kill his sons right in front of him and gouge his eyes out. Let that be a lesson to all of us. <laughs> when God says, don't do anything, just relax and don't do anything. You'll live a lot longer. Amen? So now you have a little bit of backstory. So Micah is in between this time. He's in between Ahaz and he's in between, he's in between Zedekiah. So he's going to prophesy forward to the fall of Jerusalem. He's going to prophesy forward to Zedekiah the king. So he's saying literally in his prophecy, muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Siege is laid upon us. The Babylonians are on top of you. So 150 years before it happens, with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. 150 years later, they gouge Zedekiah's eyes out. You following me? Can we all agree that Micah's pretty accurate? But you, O Bethlehem, 
There's a pattern here in the Bible that we see over and over and over again of distress and deliverance. Distress and deliverance. We talked about it last week. Hey, listen, I know you're under distress right now. I have a plan to deliver you. Don't mess it up. Don't do anything. And, and, and the king can't, he just got to mess with it. No, I, I know I got plans. I, I, you know, I'm going to make this allegiance. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. No, no, no. I've got a plan for deliver, to deliver you. And we, and we talked about it was the same prophecy that God already had a plan in place. Now we fast forward and now the pattern is showing up again. Hey, there's distress in the kingdom and, and the Babylonians are coming and Jeremiah is saying, don't do anything. Don't do anything. God's got a plan to deliver you. Don't do anything. You're going to go into 70 years of captivity. You can go back and look at that. And he, he's going to regather you. It's going to be, you're going to, it's going to be tough, but you're going to, and Jeremiah actually tells him, go in to Babylon and you, you build houses and have kids and you, you plant gardens and you do the whole thing. You live your life and God will bring you back. And they just got to mess with it. And he says, I understand the distress you're in, by the way, a lot of our distress is caused by us. You know what? The quicker I realized that, the more I was able to trust God to fix me in the middle of my distress. Amen? It was either caused by you or the person beside you. Let's just narrow it down to that. Okay. So, um, so what happens is this pattern, distress, deliverance, distress, deliverance, distress, deliverance. And we see it again here. He says, look, Micah is saying, they're going to strike the judge on the cheek. And, and he's prophesying to the Babylonians take it over. But he said, don't lose hope because from Bethlehem, he's going to raise up a ruler from the ancient of days. It's miraculous, isn't it? And then we fast forward all the way to Herod. He's kind of like a vassal king under the Romans. He only had a certain amount of power. Subject to the Romans still. These wise men. These pesky wise men show up. And by the way, in case you didn't know, your, your, um, your nativity scene is a little bit off. Is it true? You should really just take the wise men out of it. They weren't in there right away. Jesus was running around back talking by the time they got there. I don't think he ever did that. That was a joke. It's a couple years later, they show up. I mean, you got to give them a little while. They're walking from the east. They're walking and following a star. I don't know how many miles they can do in a day, but it's probably not 50. And so they make their way. The star pops up. They make their way. They get in to around this area and, and they, and they say, um, hey, it's like they're going around town going, we heard, we, we fought a star here and, and there's, um, there's a king that's been born. They, Herod ends up hearing about it through the grapevine. Hey, you know, there's some kings that just showed up and they said there was a king born here. And, and Herod calls them in and says, oh, I heard you're looking for a king. Yeah, we've been following a star over here and uh, we've been looking for him. And, and could you imagine Herod, who was not 
a godly king. Could you imagine Herod finding out? We talk about a king's been born. Like what, like, what do you mean? So Herod's response to this meeting with the wise men was to call in all his chief priests and scribes and say, Hey, I just talked to these three guys from the East and, um, and they tell me that a, that a baby has been born king, king of the Jews. Can, can you elaborate on that? Where is he, where is he from? What's going on? And his own chief priests and scribes point all the way back to Micah and go, yeah, Bethlehem. Duh. I don't think they said that, but I think when they left Herod's presence, they went, are you kidding me? Everybody knows he's going to be born in Bethlehem. It's like they picked it right up. So what he does is he secretly then calls the wise men back in and he says, Hey, I got a deal for you. Um, you know, I'm kind of a big deal around here. I'm Herod the king, in case you didn't know. So when you find the child, come back and let me know. Deal? And then I'll go and worship him. Which if you fast forward a little bit, you realize in the gospels that Herod had no intentions of worshiping him. He had all intentions of sending hit squads out and killing all the babies. So what happens is they go, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. We find him. We'll let you know. They leave. The star takes them directly where Jesus is now and they worship him. They bring him gifts. And then in a dream, they find out, don't go back to Herod. He had bad intentions. And so they leave and go back to their own country. Herod over time figures out that he's been, he's been shorted. They didn't keep their side of the deal. He still doesn't know. So he says, Hey, if it's Bethlehem, send them, send the hit squad down there and do it. We're going to eliminate this threat automatically. Now, I know our Christmas is a celebration of hope and joy, but a couple years after the first one wasn't. And there's something to be learned by this, by this model of distress and, and deliverance, distress and deliverance, distress and deliverance, because we find ourselves in this place, in, the, in this model still today. Some of our distress is brought on by ourselves. Can you say amen? It just is. You're sinful just like I'm sinful and our sins have consequences. And as much as we hate to admit it, some of the circumstances we are in are by our own hands. I mean, Berkeley Springs said amen there. Um, everybody here is like, well, I don't know. What sin are you talking about? The one you did this morning. I don't know. So we find ourselves in this pattern we're under distress, sometimes by our own hand. And, but the God, our God, who is so gracious and merciful and kind and loving, always has a plan of deliverance set in front of us. Here's the problem. Sometimes we not only reject his plan of deliverance, we try to drive it into the ground. Because, Lord, that's not my plan. Because remember, I told you how I am. I, like, I can figure it out before God can. That's the way I think. Like, before God makes a move, I got to hurry and figure this out. So I do it my way. Anybody else? I mean, I just, I just, my wife will tell you, I'm like, bop, 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 plug this in, take this out, change this part, and da, 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 da. And then at the end of the day, it all works. God, this ain't rocket science. You don't have to do some weird thing where you use other people in my life. 
Some of you get that later. We don't need to go through all that mushy stuff where we're having relationships. That's weird. Just make it like nuts and bolts, Lord. So much easier. Like an engine works or it doesn't. And you can figure it out. So sometimes God's deliverance shows up and I don't like what it's wrapped up in. Sometimes God's deliverance shows up and it looks threatening. Sometimes it's threatening my position. Sometimes it's threatening my pride. Sometimes it's threatening my legacy. Sometimes all the things that I've concocted in my head about the way the future should work out, God's deliverance shows up and it threatens all of it. Because I'm going like, God, I had this planned out. All the good leaders have 10-year plans. That's what the book said do. They said plan, 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 plan. And I planned it out. And then I got in trouble. And then you said you were going to deliver me. And your deliverance does not look like my plan. So Herod tries to kill the deliverance for his country. Think about it. So next time God shows up in a way in your family, your personal life or your business or whatever you're involved in, God shows up in a way that you're not, a, you're not really totally comfortable with, be careful before you kill it. Go back. Go back to the word of God and say, man, is this what the deliverance was described as? Go back to the word of God and find out first, is this, is this, is this, this could be exactly what God said he would do in my life. But, but here's what happens. It is, uh, li- listen, I just need to be trans- totally honest with you. Sometimes the letting go of what I've already decided is harder than being delivered. Like, Lord, I've staked a reputation. I've staked everything on this. I've put everything, I've put all my ba- eggs in this basket and I ain't got no more chickens. I put them all in this basket and I'm counting on them to work out. And he's going, yeah, but I was going to deliver you and it's going to look different. And I'm like, mm, that looks like a fox. That doesn't look like deliverance. That looks like I'll lose all my eggs. Yeah, you may have to. So here's a king who's more afraid. Here's a king who's more afraid of losing his legacy and position than he is fulfilling prophecy. His, his chief priests and scribes come to him and go, yeah, the king of kings, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Really? Well, we should kill him. That would be more security for me. Because I don't want any other king delivering anything else. Except me. And so I have to be so careful in my life that when God starts doing things that I don't knee jerk and go, no, 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 I'm not doing that. No, I can't, it can't happen. No, I won't go that way. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to include that. Ah! And I have to go back to the word of God and say, that's exactly what you told me you do. Forgive me. That's exactly what you told me you do. Now, now church, Can I just let you know this? The scary part for all of us should be if we don't know the word of God, we don't know what he told us he would do. And so we could be inadvertently killing his deliverance without knowing it. 
Now, in Herod's case, he, he had it right in front of him and still rejected it. I'm going to give you a break. I'm going to just act like you don't know. I can't have a break because it's my job to know. Amen? The church should never view God's deliverance as a threat. Now, I'm going to say this. Sometimes in modern church, we view the return of Christ as something to be terrified of as a believer. We're like, oh, you start talking about end times and everybody's like, I know, I know. I just got another dump truck load of dried goods. That's fine. If you're going to do that, that's fine. I'll, I'll come over and hang out with you. Depending on when you think Jesus is coming back. And I'm not going to get into that today. But the church should look at this as a delivering aspect of the future. Listen to me. If the church isn't excited about the return of Christ, why would anybody else be? We're the one he's coming for. We're the bride of Christ. That's what the Bible tells us. We're the bride of Christ. And he's coming longing to, 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 to bring us to himself. And, and the bride of Christ longingly looks for the return of the bridegroom. Amen? Like when I show up to a wedding and the bride and the bridegroom are just kind of like, I don't know, what time are we doing this? Matter of fact, I don't even know. I don't know, I just got drug up here today. The church, the modern church is acting like that. Like, I don't know if he's coming back or not. And when he does, whatever. It should be, it should be an exciting thing to think about. In distress, and that's what our deliverance looks like. In distress. Where do we point to? We point to the soon coming king. We point to the soon coming king. We point. So it should be an equal measure of thank you, Lord, and I've got work to do. Amen? And we should be excited about it. Why do you work so hard? Why do you put it in so hard? Why do you, why do you try to teach your family like that? Why do you try to do all that? Because my king is coming back. And I'm not afraid of it. But I will be ready. Amen? But the church, where the modern church curls up in the corner and goes, I hope he doesn't come tomorrow. I hope he doesn't come tomorrow. And we're more like Herod than we think we are. Lord, just hold on a little while longer. Don't come tomorrow. There's a couple things I want to do. There's a movie I want to watch. You know, that new movie came out. I'm shedding some light on my teenage years. All right. Bethlehem. What's so important about Bethlehem? But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now, a clan, the way that's translated there, a clan back, back then, reference to a clan, was about a thousand soldiers. And really what Micah was saying was, you're so small, you don't even have a clan. You, don't, you, you can't even, you can't put together a thousand soldiers. I mean, this was like Hedgesville, 1985. Some of you are like, Really? The metropolis we're in now. Ooh. 
should have been here 30, 40 years ago. It's saying, look, it's so insignificant. It's such an insignificant town. You can't even put together a thousand soldiers. There's not even a clan that's there. And, and, and yet God picked you. From you shall come forth from me, for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Paul referenced this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. He said, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There wasn't anybody walking around Bethlehem going, hey man, we're the... We're the baddest city on the planet. Of course the Messiah is coming from us. There wasn't anything to speak of. But God picked that place to show us that he will use the small things in our life. He will use the things that are insignificant. He'll use the things that don't seem to matter to anyone else. He will use Bethlehem to show Herod, you're not the one I picked. You're not. He would use Bethlehem, the weak, to show the world how much love he had for us. Jesus, in every way, would confound the religious leaders in his ministry. He was born in a small town, Nazareth. He was raised or in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. And even, even the people around him were going, wait, did he come from Nazareth? I mean, that's like... I mean, they literally thought it was an awful place. They said nothing good can come from there. I don't know if you grew up there, but this is God's design. I'll prove to you. He was born in a small town. He was raised in Nazareth. The Bible tells us he was nothing special to look at. He wasn't Brad Pitt. He's kind of old now, isn't he? I should probably get somebody more relevant. He associated with the wrong people. He wasn't great at keeping the rules. Yet he was God with us. Yet he was God with us. God, through Jesus, proved to all of us for all eternity that he is not depending on your reputation or your strength or your talent to get it done. Come on, shouldn't we, shouldn't we just, everybody there. Now, but that means we need to change what we brag about. Because I know there's probably 10, 15, 20% of you that like me that just want a sterling reputation of kicking butt. Anybody else? Some of you, it doesn't matter, and we'll pray for you after the, but the rest of us, want to get to the end of our lives and look back and have at our funeral going, they crushed it. I mean, that I'm just letting you know, that's me. Like I want it on my tombstone. He crushed it. And God has to remind me all the time. Your talent won't get you there, Chris. You can't work hard enough. Do you remember where Jesus was born? 
Do you remember where he was raised? Do you remember who he hung out with? There wasn't anything about that group of people that everybody was saying, hey, Jesus is the new under 40. Jesus is the up and rising leader under 40. Jesus is the new, Jesus is the new, he's on all, in front of all the entrepreneur magazines. No. No, by default, the crowd he was hanging around would have, would have precluded him from all that. The place that he was from, the parents he had, it was all as common as you can possibly imagine. It was as common as you could ever imagine. And the crazy part was, he was God. He was building furniture. Now, I'd like to think that would be some pretty cool furniture to have right now, but where'd your dining room table come from? I mean, you're not going to believe me, but the church must change what we're confident about. Paul would later write in a second letter to the Corinthians, for, this, for the sake of Christ, then, I am confident with weakness. I'm confident in insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am, then I am strong. Paul had found out this formula. Now, now listen to me. Paul had the exact opposite upbringing that Jesus did. Paul was born in the right family. He was a Roman citizen. Paul sat under the right teachers. When he started bragging about himself, he started saying stuff like, I'm, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I went to the right schools, was taught by the right people. I had more zeal than anybody else. I was a persecutor of Christians. I could get it all done. As far as it was up to my work ethic, there was nobody like me. And then when Jesus gets a hold of him, he realizes that it didn't mean anything. And he is transformed into a human being that realizes as long as I'm the one pulling all the levers, I'll never know the power that is available to me through God. As long as I'm the one in control, as long as I'm the one, as long as I'm depending on my ability, as long as I'm standing up going, hey, I've got the answer to everything, as long as I'm the one who has to control it, as long as I'm depending on me, I'll never know the power of God. And so he writes to 2 Corinthians, the, the second letter to the Corinthian church, and he says, hey, you know what I figured out? That I'm at my best when I'm weak and he's strong. And so from now on out, you go ahead and brag about what you want to. But at the end of the day, I'm going to brag about what God has done in me. And I figured out in persecution, he's as strong as I've ever seen him. I figured out when I'm the weakest, he's a strong, there's a power that comes up that I can't even describe to you. And the church has to start realizing that we got to brag about different stuff. Or pretty soon we'll be able to relate to no one. Think about it. Why did Jesus relate to everybody? Why, why, why could Jesus walk into a crowd and win them over immediately? Why could Jesus sit with drunkards and sinners and then not be appalled by him? Because God chose to bring him in the form of a simple man. The church can't lose sight of that. At Christmas time, we can't lose sight of that. We can't be so successful that we can't relate to common man. And the church has this 
And the West has this prosperity mentality where we got to rise to the top of the heap and we got to show everybody how to get there and we got to show everybody and then we become unrelatable to people that struggle. Amen? And Jesus never become un, never became unrelatable to people struggling. As a matter of fact, we know in Scripture it says, we, we have a Savior. We have a high priest who knows what it's like to struggle just like we do. And yet the story of the church sometimes is let's show them how not to struggle. So we get in our little bubble and we, and we become unrelatable to everybody around us. And God's going, I chose the weak to confound everybody. So we become confident in our weaknesses. We become confident in insults. Hey, do me a favor this Christmas season. If you get insulted, try this. Do nothing. Try it. Look at your neighbor and say something bad to him. Try it. Try it. Just say, say something bad to him. And then you say nothing back. Try it. I bet you didn't think that was going to be the Christmas story this morning. Now reverse it. Now reverse it. Now, you know, we want to make it even. Paul said, I learned how to not to defend myself because Jesus didn't defend himself. I learned, I learned how to persevere because Jesus persevered. I learned all this because it's not in my strength, but it's in his. I learned if I'm going to brag about anything, this is what I'm going to brag about. And then at the end, stand your feet. I love what Micah says here. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. We're going to keep hitting on this idea that this was God's plan from before the beginning. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is God, was the plan of salvation, is the plan of salvation. There is no other gig. There is no other trick. There, it is nothing else but Jesus. And this was the plan all the, of all the time. He was and is and is to come. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that will stand for all of eternity. There is no other way. We celebrate Christmas every year to say, God came. And yes, he is, and that is it. There is no other deliverance. And our message to the world is this. In distress, he is our savior. In distress, he is our savior. In distress, he is our savior. Come on, in distress, he is our savior. That's been the plan forever. And as long as as we and the world are looking for it from somewhere else, we're going to miss the one from forever. So this morning, if you've been looking for it and money, if you've been looking for it, relationships, you've been looking for it and drugs, you've been looking for it, addiction, if you've been looking for it all other places, you're just compounding the distress. And God is telling you this morning, don't be like those kings. Don't be like Ahaz. Don't be like Zedekiah. Don't be like Herod. I'm telling you to accept me, accept Jesus, because he is the only deliverance. He is the only deliverance. Stop complicating. Stop trying to find it other places. If you're at your weakest right here, you're in a good position. 
for him to deliver you. Father, come on all across the room by your hands. We come to you this morning, Lord, knowing, we know deep down inside that we're not as in control as we think we are. And Lord, in, in every, without fail, every person in this room, Lord, knows what it's feel like, knows what it's feel like to be in distress without knowing how to get out of it. And so, Lord, we want to do the opposite of these examples this morning, and we want to accept your deliverance. We want to accept you, not just the plan, but you. You're our soon coming king. You are our hope. You're our salvation. You're our way where there seems to be none. You are it. And so, Lord, in this Christmas season, in the middle of chaos, Lord, we reach up to you and say, save us today. Save us, Lord.